0: I hope um, that you have a sense today, as, as we're together as the church, a part, just a small part of the church, this global family of God, this movement of God's people around the world, that you are wanted, like that, that you are loved, and that you are loved uh, with a love that could not get any better. Uh, it, it might sound kind of strange to say, like, y- you are wanted. We don't often talk about God that way, that God wants you. But that's what we find in the scriptures, that God sort of has this, this passion that burns for us, this almost this jealousy for our lives. And uh, just throughout this morning, like, in worship together as a church, like, just get this sense of God's, like, th- just the, the force of God's passion for us as his people. Um, I, I had this amazing privilege over the last uh, couple days to be with Cody and Misty Dick. Um, and Cody and Misty are usually here in third service, and Misty was um, kind of scheduled to be induced on w- this next Wednesday. Um and uh, they have um, a son that was, was now born. Things went ahead of, ahead of schedule. And some of you know Misty's, Cody and Misty's story that there's been a lot of pain uh, over the last couple of years. And so got to be with them um, celebrating this amazing gift of a healthy newborn son. So we welcome to the world and to the family Frank DeWayne. Uh, can we just say thank you to God for that? And to see... Um, to see pictures of a, a father and a mother sort of holding their child for the first time. Some of you have been there, um, been the ones who have been held, or remember sort of that feeling. Or some of you are even sitting here this morning sort of holding maybe a child in your hands. And to know this sense of like, Cody and Misty wanted that son. I mean, they want him. And have been waiting and longing and praying for him. And to let yourself just sort of feel for a second that you are the one being held. That you are the one being pursued. You are the one that God is wanting and drawing to himself. That God has this sort of almost jealous kind of love for you. This is, this is what we find throughout the Bible. Uh, oftentimes throughout the Bible, God's relation to, relationship to his people is like a, a lover, as awkward as that sort of sounds, right? Uh, but it's this, this, this sort of pursuit, this passionate pursuit of the other. And so as we sing a song, like as we ended our service this morning, that um, here's my heart, God. I'm just sort of like, I'm, I'm giving you my, myself, my heart. And what that means, I think, isn't so much that we're giving God like our, our feelings, like I feel love for God and I feel like this because maybe some of us don't we don't I don't feel that so our heart don't think about it in terms of like our feelings think about it as a surrender to God God I am yours and I'm here and I'm giving you my my whole self my whole being um, this is what God wants for us our worship, our, our, the giving of our lives isn't just something God wants from us. His jealousy for us isn't just something that God wants from us as if he like, sort of needed it. It's something God wants for us because God knows that we will only be fully alive when we are completely surrendered to his love for us. Uh, St. Augustine said it this way, that our hearts, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but our hearts will always be restless until they find their home in God. So maybe you're sort of restless this morning um, because, because your heart isn't sort of fully surrendered to God, that you're not experiencing the beauty, the gift of life with God, of complete surrender to our creator who knows us, who loves us, who gave his life for us, and who wants, um, who wants nothing more than to fulfill us and to meet the desires like, of longing and of meaning inside our hearts, to meet those longings of the human heart. And we've been looking for those longings to be met somewhere else. So, like, maybe, maybe that's where we are as we gather this morning. He's like, man, my heart is not fully committed to God. It's sort of divided. One of my favorite songs is the old hymn of the church, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Do you know that song? Oh, we used to sing it to our kids. We used to, like, rock them to sleep, and I would normally wake them up with it when I started to sing. Uh, Carmen had a little more soothing voice than I did. Um, but this song has been really special in our lives. Carmen actually did a little painting and put it on the wall of our girls' room. And so sometimes we sing it together. But the third verse of this song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, has this amazing line that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This is a human story. This is my story. I'm guessing it's your story. Like, we are prone to sort of be seduced by other things, other things that promise us fulfillment, that promise us hope, that promise us joy and security. The problem is, Nothing can deliver on that except God. This is why God wants for us to be fully surrendered to him and to his love, his passion for us. And so as we pick up on the story of Elijah, this is what is happening. God is is pursuing his people. He's calling them into a relationship with himself so that they can be his missionary people in the world. God's project. Like, do you know God has a project? God's project has always been to redeem and restore all created things. This world is broken, it's fractured, it's not the way God intended it to be because of human sin, and God's project is to fix it, to restore things, and he starts by restoring our hearts, by healing our wounds, and then he sends us out sort of into the world as sort of wounded healers to help bring other people back into relationship with God. That's God's project. And so... Um, But in order for us to be useful in the project, we have to be at a place of surrender to God. Uh, Otherwise, we have nothing to offer. We don't have the kind of life within us that is going to actually fix broken things. And so God, in the story, in 1 Kings chapter 18, and so if you have your Bibles, uh, we'd love to have you turn there. 1 Kings 18, what we find is that Elijah is a prophet. He's a prophet, and Elijah was called to bring God's people back to God, to turn their hearts back to God. Now, prophets had a really tough job uh, because their job, more than anything else, was to be a voice of truth to counterbalance the power of the kings. Do you remember a story of God's people? They were never supposed to have kings. It wasn't part of the plan. Um, They were never supposed to have a human king on the throne because they were supposed to be so unique, so special— that God was going to be their king. God was going to be the one who led them. Uh, they would have no human king on the throne, but in 1 Samuel 8, what we find in the story of God is that his people rebel against him as king. Say, no, 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 God, we don't want you to be king. It's a little awkward. We can't see you. Like, we can't hear your voice. It's weird. We, we don't, it's not secure enough for us, so God, give us a human king to lead us so that we can be like everybody else. We don't like this whole unique mission thing. We don't like to be contrast. We just want to be like everybody else. So God says, well, here's the problem. If I give you a king, you're not going to like it. You're not going to like it. This king is going to exploit you. He's going to abuse you. He's going to tax you. He's going to take your sons and daughters and make them his slaves, make them serve in his military and in his palace. And you're going to cry out someday down the road, you're going to cry out to me to, to sort of set you free from your own king that you chose. And they say, hey, we don't care. We want a king anyhow. So what does God do? He says, okay. He says, okay. So he gives him a king, but he he tries to use it, and he says, okay, kings, your job is not to be like sort of power-hungry and wealthy and all that. Your job as a king is to be a humble servant to lead God's people in the path I'm choosing. The problem was the kings didn't do that. More often than not, the kings were evil. Why? Because power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? So the the humans were never meant to hold that kind of power. So we have, through the story of God's people in the Old Testament, we have many more wicked kings than we have good kings. And Ahab was the specific king that Elijah was called to confront. Uh, Elijah had this tough job of confronting Ahab, because Ahab and his wife Jezebel um, were the worst. Like, how many of you say that, like, on a regular basis? Like, oh, that is the worst. Dude, that is the worst. I couldn't get in the bathroom this morning because my sister is brushing her teeth. Like, that is the worst. Or, uh, <coughs> I dropped cell phone reception. Like, that is the worst. Um, he liked that voice. That was... Um, those things are not really the worst, by the way. Like we, we tend, that's sort of a, a saying that sort of rolls off our tongues with way too much ease. Like, that's not really the worst. But Ahab was the worst. In fact, the Bible says Ahab was the worst. He did more evil in the sight of God than any other king. So Ahab was the worst. And his wife Jezebel was the one who was like sort of pulling his heart away. Uh, <clears throat> that they were worshiping these other gods and encouraging, encouraging the people to do that. So Elijah, if you remember from two weeks ago, Elijah had, had given this command. He said, okay, um, God is sort of done with this. And so what God's going to do is he's going to bring a drought. <clears throat> he's going to stop providing rain. And what's going to happen is the clouds are going to dry up. <clears throat> excuse me. And he's going to stop providing rain. So <clears throat> Elijah Um, He speaks this word to Ahab, and this happens, like the rain stops, and Elijah heads off to the desert, uh, to the wilderness, in the season of solitude. He's gone. Um, How many of you could use a season of solitude in your life? A season of solitude, this is like when you, you take the earbuds out, and you turn off the noise, turn off the news, and you withdraw from people, even people you love sometimes, to just sort of withdraw and the reason for a season of solitude is to get alone with God, to be quiet before God, to be sort of, to, to tune in to God's voice. Elijah is sent out on this season of solitude, uh, and we need it. Many of us are called to really intense things. We, we have intense jobs, intense family situations, intense ministry, and all of that. And without intentional seasons of solitude, we will burn out. Like, we'll just sort of of flame out. We won't have what it takes to sustain us for the long run. God has sort of built into his people this need for seasons of solitude, and you need it. Maybe it's five minutes a day, or maybe it's a full day, once a month, or an extended period, Uh, but this intense time of silence to be with God and God alone. Now, um, how many of you could use a three-year period of solitude? Would that be good? That's how long Elijah's was. It was like three years, a little over three years. Um, I would go crazy. So Elijah is in this season of solitude for about three years, but then in verse 1, God speaks to him. Verse 1, chapter 18 says, After a long time in the third year, so third year of this drought, the, lo- the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went and presented himself to Ahab. Um, so God is, God is ready to alleviate the suffering. There's been, uh, the, the, the drought has caused a famine, and there's intense suffering, and God says, I can't take it anymore. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something to alleviate it. So God says to, ah- to Elijah, he says, go. I'm sending you back, and you're going to confront Ahab about this. It's going to be a bit of a showdown. So on the way back, Elijah, who's been in the season of solitude in the wilderness, he comes and he... Um, he meets this guy named Obadiah. Um, Obadiah is not the prophet Obadiah, who you read about later in the Old Testament. Obadiah was a servant of King Ahab, the worst, right? But a- Obadiah was a righteous man. His heart was fully committed to God. And Obadiah starts to fill Elijah in on how bad things were for these last three years. Like that, that Ahab and his wife Jezebel had been exterminating God's people. Anybody whose heart was fully turned toward God, um, God's prophets... They were killing. So Obadiah says, this is how bad it is. He's been killing all these people, but I have taken it upon myself to save a hundred of them. I've hid 50 in this cave, and 50 in this cave, and for the last three years, I've kept them alive with food and water. This is how bad it is. And so Elijah says to Obadiah, he says, I love this, verse 8, go tell your master, Elijah is here. You love that? The boys are back in town. That's what I I hear uh, when, I, when I hear them. Go tell your master Elijah is here. <clears throat> so Obadiah, he kind of at first, he's like, ah oh, I'm not so sure that's a good idea to send me. What if, like, what if he kills me? You know, and he says, no, 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 it's going to be okay. I'm coming. Today I'll meet, I will confront um, <clears throat> Ahab. So he goes back, tells Ahab, verse 16, we pick it up. So, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah, king, prophet, confrontation. What? Verse 17, when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Elijah says, I'm your huckleberry. No, he says, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the ways of Baal's. So the question is who's to blame? Who's to blame? Is this famine God's problem? As, as, as ahab that 's what he says when he sees elijah he says you 're the, the the troublemaker you 're the one who 's been troubling Israel. How many of you know that when conviction comes to us, our first impulse is to blame somebody else, like to shoot the messenger um, like when, when conviction comes to us, our first kind of response is to put the blame on somebody else like if if your parents I had this experience uh, a number of times where my parents like saw things in my life, or I had friends who did this too who loved me enough to do this, who like saw things in my life to say like, hey, Eric, something seems off here. Like this, this doesn't, this isn't right, and um, can, let's talk about this, and I think this needs to change, right? Uh, do you have people like that in your life who will speak truth to you, who will just say, hey, some, something's not right? And who'll do it lovingly, but who will do it firmly as well. Like, you know they love you enough to just sort of, like, and parents, this is our role, uh, to be able to say, like, eh, no, like, this is not okay. And I remember, like, having these moments, like, where you, like, sort of stomp to your room, and I know none of you ever do this, but like, oh, you hate them. You know, like, this, like, anger. Anger for your parents. Why? Because not, like, in those moments, it's really hard to say, God, thank you for giving me loving parents who, who love me enough to, like, bring out the side of me that I don't really want to look at. But in those moments, it's like we want to, like, sort of blame the messenger. Like, it's their problem. And so, like, one of the things that Ahab teaches us about human experience here is to say when God convicts us, whether it's through just our conscience, the Holy Spirit sort of pricks our hearts and turns us, or whether it's through somebody else who loves us enough to confront us about our behavior, to resist the temptation to blame them, to turn and walk away from them, And to to receive it and to say, how can I change my conduct? That conviction becomes a change for conduct. To say, okay, like, yeah, I have shadows in my life that I can't see and I need to be confronted on in in loving but firm ways. This is what disciples do for each other. Like, this is what spiritual family is. We love each other enough to to do this in the context of a loving, grace-filled community. And, and so we resist the temptation to blame and to accuse like Ahab did. Ahab did not come up to Elijah and say, Elijah, I'm so glad you're back. Um, the last three years have been horrible. I'm so sorry for what I've done. This famine has been like, I, it, it hurts me so much to see my people starving and it has wreaked havoc. And it's my fault. Elijah, what do you want me to do to, to end this thing? The, the famine did not humble Ahab's heart. I mean, the first thing he says is, you're the troublemaker. It's your problem. So we learned something about that. The second thing we learned about that is that in some ways, God was the problem. Like, and Tony Evans um, said this, I heard him say this, and the first time I heard him say this, I was like, I'm not so sure I buy that. He says, if God is your problem, only God is your solution. If God's your problem, what do you mean if God's my problem? Well, like, suppose, like Ahab and the people, you turned your back on God. And you said, God, I don't really want you in my life. Like, I'm going to pursue these other things. And, and you just sort of rejected him and, and turned and walked away. And eventually God got to a point where he said, you know what? Like, if that's what you want, then I'm just going to simply, I'm going to remove myself. And if God is the one who gives the abundance, who sends rain, and who, who blesses the people, who sustains the earth, and God says, if you want to worship these other gods who you think bring rain and make crops fertile and all that, if you want to do that, then okay, and see how well that goes. That sometimes what God's judgment, what his punishment is, is he simply gives us what our hearts really want, and he lets us feel that. And so if God is your problem, and and by that I mean if we have turned our backs on God and we're feeling the heat of our own decisions, then only God is our solution then the only solution is to turn around and come back. It's to turn around and come back. And here's the beautiful thing about God is we may have walked a mile off the course, like so to speak. Like, we may have been walking for years, turning our backs on God and pursuing these other things. And the moment we turn around in humility, and this is what repentance is, it's turning around and saying, God, I'm sorry, and I'm here, God takes all of those steps and meets us where we are, and then just begins walking back with us, and restoring us, and healing us from the inside out. Um, I really debated on whether I was going to say this or not, because I really, I try to resist saying, like, these big, like, strong statements of, like, God always, or God never, because just find that not all that helpful all the time, but I really feel strongly about this, that God never refuses a humble prayer for mercy. I really believe that. That God never refuses a humble prayer for mercy. That had Ahab at this moment said, God, Elijah, I, I'm sorry. Would you, would you help me? That God would have heard that and would have turned and would have begun restoring his people. But that's not what Ahab did. But we have this, we have this choice. Uh, a humble prayer for mercy. God does not turn it away. So now, uh, let's talk a little bit about the sin of idolatry. Idolatry is this sin of looking for other things to provide what only God can provide. False gods. False gods. Craig Rochelle says this. I like it. False gods promise what only the true God can provide. False gods promise what only the true God can provide. And the false gods, the people in the Old Testament were tempted to worship more than anything else, were the two gods, Baal and Asherah. Baal and Asherah. Let's unpack this a little bit. Um, they were seduced by Baal and Asherah. Baal on the left, Asherah on the right. Baal first. Baal was the god of fertility. Uh, he was the God who they attributed the weather to. So when God wants to confront Baal worship, what does he do? He says, we're going to stop the rain. If Baal's the one who brings the weather, good luck with that. He was a God who was said to like sort of ride on the clouds and bring fire and lightning from heaven. We'll hear more about that in a minute. Um, so he was a God of fertility. He was a God who was, was made the crops grow, so they thought. made the ground fertile and brought the rain in its season. Now the reason the Israelite people, put yourself in their place for a second, the reason they were so seduced by Baal was because for all these years in the desert they were nomads. They they had sheep, they had flocks and herds, and they never settled down. From the time they came out of Egypt they're just sort of nomadic. They're wandering around the wilderness and, and they never settled down. They're just going from green pasture to green pasture. But now all of a sudden, all these years later, they come and they settle down in the promised land, the land of Canaan. And here are these people who worship this god Baal, who you live in this place year after year, season after season. You cultivate the same ground, and you're going to depend on those gods to make your ground fertile. And so what they, what they tried to do is they say, well, we're going to keep worshiping Yahweh, the one true God, but we're just going to mix in a little Baal worship just to sort of hedge our bets. That's where it started. Like, we'll just make some sacrifices to Baal. God won't care. Did God care? Yes. Why? Because it destroyed their purpose, their project in the world. It, it messed it all up. It muddied everything. And so that's what Baal was. Baal, um, and so Ahab and, and Jezebel, they, being the worst, they actually set up a temple to Baal in the capital city of Samaria. That's how bad it got. Um, So now, uh, Asherah on the other side, Asherah was kind of this seductive figure usually pictured in the nude, um, and her worship of Asherah usually had to do with prostitution of some kind. And so it was this whole sort of messy, um, you know, sort of uh, distorting God's gift of human sexuality, and what they believed in that time is like any activities humans did on earth were sort of replicated in the heavenly realms, and it made the gods do those same things. So when prostitution happens at a temple or a, uh, these, these these shrines to Asherah, what happens is Asherah is the goddess of fertility, and so the gods sort of replicate this whole thing and it makes children fertile. Well, imagine living in a world where you have, or not children fertile, but makes, you know what I meant. Um, But it Imagine living in a world <clears throat> where about half of the women who go into to, to labor die in childbirth. Can you imagine, like, this is, this is the world they live in, or either a child or the woman dies in childbirth. So let's just worship Asherah just a little bit here on the side, too, to, to hedge our bets. And they were seduced constantly by Baal and Asherah. And God, um, it, 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 was, it was mission critical that they that, that God sort of confronted this. Now, before we start to think like, oh man, they were so stupid. Like, before we start to think like, well, what were they thinking? You ever read the Bible and you think, man, those people were dumb. Like, how do you not know? Are there any things in our life that we look for to provide us with security, stability, value, meaning, fulfillment, that only God can really give? I mean, are there those idols in our lives that we're tempted to sort of look to for those things that only, they promise us something that only God can give us. What about money? I mean, money's a big one. Jesus says, a hey, money is a rival God. You can't serve both God and money. It's just, it, we we're seduced by it because it promises us things it can't give us. The moment we get sick, money loses its value, doesn't it? The moment we lose someone we love, money, like what good is money in those moments? We, all of a sudden, the lie is exposed. It can't provide us the security we want. Our stuff, same way. Success. Man, if I just got one more promotion, if I just got one more raise, like, then I'd have a name for myself and I'd be valuable. Money, success can be a rival God. Uh, relationships. We can look for in other people what only God can provide, right? Like your, your spouse, friends. We can look for them to validate us and value us and to meet our needs and they can can't provide that for us. Only God can meet those longings of the human heart, sexual experiences outside of a covenant of marriage. Like we look for these things because they promise us like it's going to be fulfilling and it's going to make us like be, be full of life and joy. The problem is it cannot provide that. When we give our allegiance to anyone or anything other than God, we are headed down the path of idolatry. When we give our allegiance, our loyalty to anyone or anything other than God, we are headed down the path of idolatry. So Elijah comes back, and he says, there's going to be a showdown. This ends today. And he says, you gather up all your prophets of Baal, all your prophets of Asherah, and it's time for a showdown. So he he sets up the contest, and he says, okay, here's the deal. We're going to have an altar over here, and I'm going to build an altar over here. And we're going to, you, you can get the sacrifice all ready, and you can do your whatever sort of magic dances you want to do, but you can't light the fire on the altar. Baal, the God who controls fire from heaven, he's going to have to light the fire. And Elijah's is sort of setting them up. There are 450 prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Asherah, and they sort of start in this ritual. And, and Elijah says, why, why don't you go first? Well, I'll just give you home court advantage. You go first. So they start, they start dancing around and calling, come on, Baal, light my fire. And... and um, they're just, like, into this thing, and Elijah's is sort of stepping back, just sort of, like, I imagine him just, like, wanting to embarrass them. Like, I want everybody, all Israel is gathered on Mount Carmel, he wants them to see how stupid this is to worship these gods of stone, right, these, these false gods. And so he just sort of wants to expose this. and they're crying out, and you think, like, man, they look so dumb, they're, like, like they are cutting themselves, and... And it's clear God is not answering the prayer. And yet, isn't this sort of the same picture? Like when we're looking for those other things to fulfill us, money, success, relationships, sex, whatever it may be, and we're like, man, fulfill me. Like meet these needs. I think we look exactly the same way. And we look exactly the same way. And, and, and Elijah, I, I love this. It says at about noon, this does my heart so much good, because he uses this prophetic sarcasm, um, in verse twenty-seven, he says, "At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout a little louder," he said. "Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy. Maybe he's traveling or maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened." Like he just starts being sarcastic. This again, this does my heart so much good. Uh, by the way, the second one here, when he says he might be busy, is a Hebrew euphemism for he's on the toilet. <laughs> I'm serious. You look it up. He's like, it's like when somebody calls your house and they're like, hey, can I talk to so-and-so? And you say, uh, they're busy. We all know what that means, right? And that's what like Elijah is sort of like, he's like, maybe he's busy. Maybe there's a bail movement. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry for that one. <laughs> and so he's just like, he's poking fun at them. You won't forget that one. He's poking fun at them. And uh, finally, like he gets into the evening. He's like, enough. Let's stop this. My turn. So he builds his altar over here, and he builds his altar, and he gets everything ready, and he he just starts pouring it on. He's like, literally, let's pour some water on this thing. And remember, they've been in the drought for three and a half years. Where does he get the water from? I don't know. But you imagine how scarce water is after three and a half years of drought, and he just says, go ahead and waste it. Just pour it on this, because I'm going to make my point that God is the one who sustains life. I'm so confident in God's ability to provide, to, to not only burn this offering up to show everybody that he's the one true God, but to, uh, to, to take the drought away and to provide. So he has them like, do it again, do it again. Three times he has them like, flood this thing with water so much so that the trenches, the ground around the, the altar are filled with water. And then Elijah, he doesn't start cutting himself. He doesn't dance around. He just prays a simple prayer, verse 36. He says, at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward And pray, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things according to your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know, Lord, uh, that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then it happens. And then fire of the Lord fell and burnt up the sacrifice. Now we don't know if it was like a fireball, we don't know if it was lightning, we don't know what it was, but fire from the Lord fell, burnt up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up all the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So, Elijah says something in verse 21 I want to end with. He says this, how long will you waver between two opinions? When he calls out to the people, he says, How long, people, will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, we'll follow him. And I think this speaks to us. Like, how long will we waver between two allegiances? How long? Like, if, if the Lord is God, then, then give him everything. If, if, like, if we trust that God hasn't just sent fire from heaven to show us his goodness and his love, but he's actually come in the flesh, in Jesus, his own son, and has given his life, and if, if God is Lord, then give him everything, give him allegiance, give him every part of us, and stop wavering, stop looking for all of these other things to meet the needs that only God can. I think, Elijah, this is a message I hear from chapter 18 of First Kings, stop wavering. Are there any ways in which you're wavering? Are there any ways where you just sort of started dabbling with these other things that you know, like you know deep inside, this is, this is not God's best for me. This is not what God wants for me. And this path, I'm going to make one step, and the next step is actually going to get easier and easier and easier, but I know if I'm honest with myself, I know it's going to lead to a place that's not good. God does not resist a prayer of humble repentance or just humble turning. So maybe if there's some way in which your allegiance, your heart is given to anyone or anything other than God, today's a day to just sort of turn back, to say, God, I'm yours, I'm sorry, and to turn your heart back, to stop wavering. That if the Lord is God, then follow him. And follow him. God, we're thankful that you you speak to us in so many ways. You speak to us through your word, through the story. But God, more than anything, you speak to us through your son, Jesus, the living word. So God, um, we ask this morning that if there are places in our lives where we have, we've done the same thing, we've been prone to wander and we've sort of drifted into looking for these things to provide what only you can, God, that you would just expose the foolishness of it, just the foolishness and you would turn our hearts back. God, that you would do whatever, we give you permission to do whatever it takes to turn our hearts back to you. God, we want to be all in with no reserve. God, we want to be so fully abandoned to you and to your love for us, your passion and love for us, God, that we would find more fulfillment, more joy, more purpose than we ever thought imaginable. God, you're holding out to us the greatest gifts in the world. So, God, we want to receive them. And, God, we ask that you would use us in your project, that you would send us into your world to be contrast, to be people of healing and of hope in this world. And, God, we pray this in Jesus' name.